All in all, about 50 armed warriors slowly approached the encampment. The dawn was just starting to break, so many of the people that even now were being snuck up on were in their homes, fast asleep. Rifles trained, the warrior's leader, none other than Geronimo, told them to get ready for action. He made sure his men knew that they were to kill anyone who resisted them. Now, this is a scene that's all too common in Arizona during this time. Apache slowly, methodically creeping up on their targets, ready to strike. But what makes this incident remarkable is the target. This was not a herd of horses or mules to steal. Neither was it an unsuspecting American settlement, and it certainly wasn't an army fort or camp. No, they were sneaking up on an Apache rancheria, and soon would issue one final ultimatum. Come with them, or die. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 93, Kidnapped. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as a religious movement built around the dreamer, Nak I Det Kline, gained traction among the various Western Apache bands. Of course, anything the Apaches did, no matter how benign, made the U.S. Army skittish, so they decided to silence this new Apache prophet. When simple kidnapping didn't work and caused their own scouts to turn against them, they wound up killing him. Further overreactions to this incident, plus some bold-faced lying, caused the Chiricahua Apache down on San Carlos to believe that they were going to be next. So on the night of September 30th, 1881, 375 men, women, and children made a break for Mexico. They did have a bit of luck on their side. September 30th was a ration day on the reservation, so they all had food to pack along for this trek. The agency officials had allowed them to keep their firearms, too, for hunting, which meant they would have means of defending themselves if and when the army came a-calling. Nature itself was in a cooperative mood. As the monsoon season had ended, nighttime temperatures were still pretty good, and a partial moon meant they could enjoy the cover of darkness for their exodus. The major issue was that only about a third of the company had horses to use, but when part of your people's culture is raiding, that won't remain a problem for too long. In fact, near the beginning, Geronimo and a small group broke off from the main body, only to return a little later with 50 horses and mules. See? Not that much of a problem. The histories I have point out that the Chiricahua had their usual routes down into Mexico, which they prudently decided not to use this time around. Under the direction of Hua, they decided to avoid the valleys and mountain passes they usually employed for a more straight shot south, and this actually put them out of the way of patrols still trying to capture Apache involved in the attacks on Colonel Carr and his men in the White Mountains. Meanwhile, the Apache that had decided to remain at San Carlos, and yes, many did, which will become a major bone of contention in just a little bit, warned U.S. officials about the breakout. Before dawn the next day, cavalry and infantry units were dispatched to bring everyone back. 
I don't want to get bogged down in the exact movements of the Apache because we have places to go and things to do, but I do want to hit the highlights. So as they are going along, they did what Apache do and hit a Mexican freight train which had 108 mules and 1,400 pounds of food. So the Apache struck this train, killed all the Teamsters, and kept fleeing south. They would also hit others, including some soldiers out of Fort Grant who were out repairing some telegraph lines. The cavalry would arrive on scene shortly after the Apache took out these soldiers, and an hours-long skirmish that is either called the Battle of K.H. Butte or the Battle of Cedar Springs ensued. And it only ended when the Apache were able to get their women and children out of harm's way, and then a diversionary flanking maneuver allowed them to get moving again without the risk of losing more people. By the morning of October 4th, 1881, so roughly three and a half days since leaving San Carlos, the Apache had made it to the Sulphur Springs Valley and then to Cochise's East Stronghold in the Dragoon Mountains. Strangely, they had not seen any signs of further pursuit from any of the usual places where they knew soldiers were stationed, despite the fact that borrowed troops from New Mexico had joined in with Arizona soldiers to hunt them down. But just when they thought they might be safe, a volley of fire caught them completely by surprise. Army officials, including General Wilcox, had packed the troops, horses and all, onto rail cars and moved them from Wilcox to Dragoon Springs, meaning there was no trail for the Apache to spot. These soldiers had disembarked at a spot where it would have been impossible for the Chiricahua to see them coming. This opening attack, which may have been premature and not well-coordinated, caused absolute chaos in the Apache camp, and the people abandoned provisions and animals as they fled. This became a running fight, with the Apache still managing to hold off the soldiers long enough to slip through first the Sulphur Springs Valley and then some known mountain passes. By October 7th, a week after, after breaking out of San Carlos and three days after the surprise attack, the band finally made it to Mexico. And historian Edwin R. Sweeney makes the point that getting into Mexico was quite the accomplishment, given the size of the Apache party and the 216 miles they had to traverse from San Carlos. They even entered Mexico with somewhere between 350 and 500 stolen horses and mules, even after abandoning more than 100 during the surprise attack. During that entire time, their losses were minimal, as they had lost maybe a handful of men, women, and children. But the army had been hampered by its main force being up near Fort Apache, still looking for those involved in the fighting following the Dreamer's death. So, much like that fish at the beginning of The Little Mermaid, they breathed a huge sigh of relief and swam deeper into Mexico. It's during this flight south and once in Mexico that Hua really becomes the leader of the Chiricahua with him. He had played a leading role in the breakout from San Carlos and Mexico was his old turf. He, in fact, would always call himself a Mexican Apache. His group would find refuge in the Carque Mountains, which sat near our old stomping grounds of Janos. Seriously, it surprises me how much the old Presidio of Janos has appeared in our story, considering I introduced it when our episode count was still in the single digits, and here we are talking about it again. 
American officials, shaking their fists very sternly from the other side of the border, learned of their location because they actually hired a frontiersman to follow them named Van N.C. Smith. And just because you know how much I love Minutia, I want to give a shout out to Smith, who is actually the founder of the one and only Roswell, New Mexico. But getting back to our story. In the Karke Mountains, the Chiricahua would meet up with the old Cheheni leader Nana, finishing up yet another vengeance run, which would boost their numbers above 400. Hua also decided to play the same game his people had been playing for a good century now, offering to make peace with Mexican authorities in Hanos. In November 1881, so just days after the shootout at the OK Corral, by the way, he actually opened negotiations with Colonel Joaquin Terrazas, who is not only the brother of the governor of Chihuahua, but also the soldier that had led the push that had killed Victorio the previous year. And it turns out that Terrazas was not so much interested in making peace with the Apache as ambushing them and killing every last one. But Hua was never known as the trusting type, so instead of coming to a certain meeting as asked, he instead went with his people back into the hills. Now, if there are no objections, I'm going to hit fast forward on all the comings and goings the Apache did in Mexico, which includes a lot more raiding, because we have things to get back to in Arizona. You see, after celebrating being in their new home, the Chiricahua leaders started talking about those other Apache bands still left at San Carlos, especially those under a leader known as Loco. There are several reasons why Loco and his men should be a concern for Hua, Naiche, Geronimo, and others. The first is that Geronimo, in particular, wanted more warriors to help fight against Mexicans. It didn't matter that Loco only had somewhere between 35 and 50 warriors with him, Geronimo was never quite so happy as he was when he was killing Mexicans. Another reason was the concern that Loco's band would die quicker from malaria and harsh conditions at San Carlos than even with them down in hostile Mexico. Sweeney does point out that Loco's band was located in a spot where the sun could be harsh, but malaria actually wasn't a problem, something the other Apache may not have realized. Finally, a couple other sources theorized that the Chiricahua that had just escaped San Carlos weren't too happy with just how well Loco was acclimating to the white man's world. Essentially, they may have thought that he and his people were growing less Apache under the reservation system. As one woman put it, quote, Here we are, hungry and chased by the army, while Loco is sitting on the reservation fat and comfortable. End quote. For all these reasons and more, Geronimo was tasked with a daring feat. He was to steal up to San Carlos and forcibly bring Loco and his people down into Mexico. Of course, it didn't have to be by force. Bonito, who had more or less helped start the flight from the reservation, was sent north with seven men in late December 1881 to carry a message to Loco. By late January 1882, they slipped onto the San Carlos Reservation and presented their message-slash-demand to Loco. In 40 days, warriors were coming to remove them from the reservation, whether they wanted to go or not. Oh, and just to make sure everyone was on board, 
Bonito warned Loco that his coming group of warriors would kill anyone who resisted. So, good luck. See you in 40 days. To be fair, some of the Apache at San Carlos, including the late Victorio's wife and some of Nana's followers, were all for this. They wanted to break out of this oppressive place and join their friends and family. But Loco was not one of them. More peacefully inclined than others, he was not in favor of having to leave San Carlos and the numerous difficulties with the Americans it would bring up. So we shouldn't be all that surprised that within a week of Bonito giving his mafioso-esque work-for-us-or-die ultimatum, that news of it leaked to the military. Loco swore up and down to a visiting Indian inspector that he did not want to go to Mexico with the other Apache. In fact, he requested to move even farther away from them, asking to be sent to the Navajo Reservation. All of this sent the military in southeastern Arizona buzzing like a beehive hit by a rock. Everyone was on guard for this force of Apache coming from the south, with roving military and police patrols monitoring all access points to San Carlos. But then a funny thing happened. February went by, then March, and suddenly they were all well past 40 days, and the latest intelligence from Mexico suggested that the Apache were still entrenched south of the border and had not left. The only thing that had happened in the last couple months was Wyatt Earp went on some vengeance fuel ride through southern Arizona. You can only remain on high alert for so long, so eventually the vigilance began to slacken. And I don't know whether this was an intentional tactic or not, but it wasn't until a full 80 days after Bonito gave his ultimatum, so April 1882, that Geronimo struck. Geronimo had left Mexico on April 11th with a force of 63 men, including Naiche, a son of Mangas Colorados, and other leaders among the Chiricahua bands. By the morning of the next day, they were slipping across the border into the United States, though it is a little unclear whether they had come up through Arizona or western New Mexico. It was during this march north that Geronimo and his band apparently came across a sheep camp being operated by some Apache from various bands, including the nephew of Chief Bylas, the white mountain leader who Victorio had killed. For complicated personal and Apache-related reasons that even I don't fully understand, Geronimo persuaded these men, who were not of a mind to trust him, to host his group. But eventually, he turned on them and slaughtered nearly everyone. The Apache with Geronimo were aghast at this treachery and told him so, keeping him from killing a small boy who was at the sheep farm. This really is a black mark against Geronimo, as it had no bearing whatsoever with what they were about to do, and if they had chosen, they could have gone around instead of through these men. As you might imagine, this didn't make Geronimo any more popular with the Chiricahua, who respected his fighting ability, but didn't really like him personally. With this horrendous deed done, they kept moving northward toward San Carlos, pausing on April 17th for Geronimo to break into four songs to call upon his power, and afterward he declared that all would go well on their way to San Carlos. The next night, around 7 p.m., they crossed the Gila River near Calva 
and snuck onto the San Carlos Reservation. As part of their insurgency, a small group was dispatched to cut the telegraph line to the main agency office. A few hours later, this was discovered by the operator and the line was repaired. But in one of those historical twists of fate, the operator on the other end was asleep and he missed the message. To be fair to that guy, his bed was right next to the equipment, but the incessant clicking of the telegraph still failed to wake him. And it also appears that advanced writers, including Nietzsche, were at the camp of Loco and other band leaders around 1 a.m. or so, but the real action got started as the sun was rising. Awakened by shouts, the people of Loco's band came out of their homes to find 50 warriors headed by Geronimo arranged between them and the Gila River. They were all armed, and they were all pointing their weapons aggressively. A member of Loco's band would later write that he heard Geronimo shout out instructions that included, quote, Take them all. No one is to be left in the camp. Shoot down anyone who refuses to go with us. End quote. At this, the warriors began hustling everyone out of their homes, tearing them out of their beds, and getting them ready to march. Loco naturally protested, but the only response he received was a rifle barrel in the chest and a warning to start moving or die. While most of Geronimo's force was escorting these people away, a small group stayed behind at the settlement. On the face of it, this group had a rather weird job. They were to make noise. The best explanation I have is that they were to be a distraction and a misdirection, allowing more time for the bulk of the Apache, numbering roughly 400, to get as far as possible. This is probably a good thing because it was morning now, and the telegraph operator who had been literally asleep at the switch was now waking up and realizing with horror what he should have been reading the previous night. Just as he was running off to report this news, shots were heard from the location of Loco's camp. Hearing the commotion, the chief of police at San Carlos, a man named Albert Sterling, and a lieutenant rushed off immediately to check on things, riding the roughly mile or so to where the band had been peacefully living. However, as the trail to the camp passed between two small hills, Sterling was shot a grand total of three times by the Apache rearguard, who had laid an ambush for any first response. Sterling, who had been a respected scout, but was a not-so-beloved figure because he enforced the bands on making Tiswin, fell off his horse, dead. This killing of the police chief had the goal of demoralizing and temporarily crippling any response from the agency's police force, something at which it succeeded brilliantly. However, there may have been more personal reasons as well. As I said, Sterling had broken up the Tiswin circles, which made nobody happy. But rumors also floated that the Chiricahua also wanted vengeance for the accidental death of a child after Sterling had fired at an Apache man. And another story is that Sterling was killed because he had strung up a man by the thumbs. The lieutenant with Sterling had managed to escape the slaughter and soon rounded up the rest of the police force. However, when they got to the spot where Sterling had been killed, they had a brief engagement with the rear guard in which the lieutenant was also shot down, and so the police force scattered. 
That night, the Apache made camp around midnight by a spring in the Gila Mountains. After nearly 24 hours without rest, food, or water, they stopped to contemplate the magnitude of what they had just done. Here also we get a first-hand account about how Geronimo was definitely in charge of this expedition. From that account we read, quote, Geronimo was pretty much the main leader, although he was not the born chief of any band, and there were several Apache with us, like Nightshay, Chato, and Loco, who were recognized chiefs. But Geronimo seemed to be the most intelligent and resourceful, as well as the most vigorous and farsighted. In times of danger, he was a man to be relied upon. End quote. Now, a lot of their comings and goings are way too detailed for us really to get hung up upon, but suffice it to say, Geronimo and his crew herded everyone toward Mexico, although taking necessary detours for water, throwing off any pursuers, and for raiding, and yes, they still raided all the way down to Mexico. During this time, about 28 of Loco's people managed to slip away, and they would turn up several weeks later at the Navajo Reservation, asking to be able to settle there. Meanwhile, the U.S. Army wasn't just sitting on its hands. Though the Chiricahua had made something close to a clean getaway, they soon found themselves pursued by Lieutenant Colonel George A. Forsyth of the 4th Cavalry. The Apache had moved to the area of Steins Peak, which you may or may not remember is just across the state line in New Mexico, northeast of San Simon. There they had skirmished with a detachment of Forsyth's men, which naturally drew the entire unit. Forsyth, after having arrived on scene, decided to throw his forces against the Apache at a place known as Horseshoe Canyon, a few miles north of Steins Peak. This engagement lasted for a little more than two hours hours, but was ultimately inconclusive as the Apache were well hidden in the ridges of the canyon. There were only a handful of casualties and fatalities on either side, so no one can really be said to have quote-unquote won this engagement. However, the Apache managed to keep slipping away, and when night fell, they were able to get far beyond Forsyth. And here, the lieutenant colonel does a funny thing. He turns around and heads back toward the Gila River. He's gotten a lot of grief from historians ever since, but it appears that he was acting off of bad information. He thought the Apache he was just fighting had come up from Mexico to join Geronimo's band, not that it was Geronimo's band heading back down toward Mexico. That means that he thought the Apache were heading north, not south, and he had acted accordingly. It's only later that he realized his mistake. Still, the Apache had no way to know that Forsyth had no way to know which way they were going, so everyone was told to move swiftly and quietly as they headed down into the San Simon Valley. By April 24th, 1882, so five days after the cough, cough, rescue of Loco from San Carlos, they'd reached some springs to replenish their water supply. Later that day, near a place called Gaileyville, which existed on the eastern side of the Chiricahua Mountains, northwest of the community of Portal and incredibly close to the New Mexico state line, this group would come across Deputy Sheriff Hugh Goodman, who, as you might have guessed, was not long for this world. Warriors then rode into Gaileyville, stole some horses, and knocked over some tents before riding out again. And they afterward hit a mining camp, killing two men before riding off again. 
In all this, this little rescue mission had left 50 civilians and 7 soldiers dead and many, many horses and mules stolen. Over the next 36 hours, the Apache pushed on hard, eventually crossing the border into Mexico south of Cloverdale, New Mexico on April 26th, a full week since grabbing Loco and his people, who by now had just accepted their fates. They kept hoofing it south to a small spot about 17 miles south of the border, amazed that they had not seen any U.S. troops since the engagement in Horseshoe Canyon three days earlier. But seeing as they were once again in Mexico, they decided it was time for a much-deserved break. For the Apache, that meant a real party, with dancing, tiswin, laughing, talking, and the singing of songs. They were also in a part of the country where agave was growing freely and was just at the point in the yearly cycle where it could be harvested and baked. This is something they couldn't do at San Carlos, so the women got to work roasting the agave for consumption and eventually carrying with them south. But with how hard they pushed themselves over the last week, the Apache decided that they needed an extended break, deciding to stay at their spot for several days and really get their strength back before riding the join with Hua and the rest of their people. They were so supremely confident in their escape that on the night of April 27, 1882, their second in this secluded nook of the mountains, they failed to even post guards. And this decision, like so many others in history, just proves that there is such a thing as tempting fate. Because their small little dust-up at Gaileyville had not gone unnoticed. U.S. Army Captain Tulilius C. Tupper, who has an amazing first name, by the way, was stationed at the San Simone Station of the Southern Pacific Railroad when a citizen of Gaileyville reported the attack. And, by the way, this attack would be trumped up in the papers as the Gaileyville Massacre, which incorrectly said that the Apache had come in and killed most of the community's citizens. Tupper was ordered to join with troops under Captain William A. Rafferty and scouts under Chief of Scouts Al Sieber to track down the Apache that had done this and make sure they paid. With just a little under 110 men, Tupper set out on April 25th, a day after the attack on Gaileyville. He deliberately waited a day so the Apache would not see the dust cloud his troops would make, which actually turned out to be a very wise decision on his part. The scouts, meanwhile, were able to easily pick up the Apache Trail, following it on a southeasterly line from the Chiricahua Mountains into New Mexico and ultimately to the border. Sieber, the chief of scouts, was sure that the Apache would let their guard down once they got into Mexico, and he was also pretty sure he knew of a certain little spring in a secluded nook of the mountains where they might be hiding. Tupper now had a difficult choice to make. His orders were not to go into Mexico, something that the Apache knew all too well. But perhaps based on Sieber's read of the situation, he decided that this opportunity was too good to pass up. Sending Sieber and a couple scouts ahead, Tupper followed him into Mexico at a respectable distance. The scouts were able to locate where the Chiricahua were celebrating, their drumbeats being heard from a distance away. And after returning to the main body with this intelligence, 
Tupper, Rafferty, and Sieber put together a plan for an ambush. The scouts were sent to the east of the Apache camp to hopefully cut off an easy escape route deeper into the mountains. Meanwhile, the rest of the soldiers were sent to the west of the camp, with the plan being to eventually catch the Apache in a vice that would slowly mow them all down with a deadly crossfire. It was a good plan, or as good as any as I've read about the U.S. Army concocting in the Apache Wars, but history, sweet history, is a fickle mistress. Remember how I told you that the women had been baking agave? Well, that was more than just a fun little detail. Because early in the morning on April 28th, shortly before daybreak, the celebrations in the camp were winding down. Three Apache women and a young man headed out east of the main camp where they had some agave cooking. But remember what's waiting on the east side of the camp? That's right, a detachment of scouts who now see some Apache approaching their position. And these troops opened fire, killing one of the girls immediately and simultaneously alerting the rest of the camp that something bad was going down. Sweeney adds a bit more drama to the situation, saying that the man who shot the girl was the brother of the San Carlos police lieutenant that had been killed when Loco's people had been removed from the reservation. So he shot this girl out of vengeance for his brother, not heeding warnings of those around him that he was basically blowing the whole plan, which he did. Tupper and Rafferty were surprised by the sudden premature springing of their trap and rushed in to try and salvage the situation. The Apache, caught totally off guard, were able to make it to a rocky butte south of the camp and were able to hold off the army troops with their rifles. During this initial attack, Loco's son had been killed, and the chief called out to the scouts to defect and join our side, something that they didn't even consider before firing at him. This battle went on for hours, but the stalemate was finally broken when some young Apache warriors made a daring flanking maneuver on those troops to the east of the camp, which allowed the main body to disappear up into the mountains. The scouts, who were running low on ammunition, could not pursue either the main body or the warriors that had managed to outflank them. The Apache may have abandoned a lot of their stolen horses and other goods, but they had gotten out with their lives. The Americans had fired somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 rounds during the fight and left with one dead and two wounded. It's a bit muddled, but it looks like the Apache lost roughly 14 men during this ambush. And just as a fun bit of trivia I'm going to shoehorn in here, Tupper would report to his superiors that this engagement, which had not been the complete route that he wanted but was still a success, had occurred in the Hatchet Mountains of New Mexico, because he didn't want to admit that he had entered into Mexico. I'm going to leave things here for this week, as the Apache flee further into Mexico, a little chastened for their carelessness. We are not done with this group by a long shot, so join me next week as this retreat manages to get even worse, both for the Apache as a whole and for Geronimo's reputation. Because though they felt like they could move with impunity, the Apache still had to at least factor in the Mexican army into their plans, and then finally, what the heck they were going to do next.
I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.